welcome to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. This will be the final episode of our three-part series entitled Strength-Based Advocacy and Collaboration. In today's episode, Dr. Gregory Luskin and MSEC's Georgia McCown are joined by Tib Cambisi, the DOD Associate Director for the Child and Youth Advocacy Program. They discuss the complicated topic of harmful behaviors in children and youth. Tib also shares how the DOD is developing programs related to preventing and responding to these behaviors, as well as tangible ways to communicate with students as well as families about this important topic. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode three in our mini series. I'm Georgia McCown, the Director of Planning, Analysis, and Evaluation at MSEC. I'm joined today by Dr. Greg Leskin, my co-host. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and serves as the Director for Military and Veteran Families Program at the University of California, Los Angeles, in partnership with Duke University's National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. Hi, George. It's great to be here. Also today, we're joined by Tib Campis, a licensed clinical social worker currently serving as the Associate Director for the Child and Youth Advocacy Program and the DOD Tiger Team Lead for developing policy and programs related to harmful behavior between children and youth and problematic sexual behavior in children and youth. She began her work in the child abuse and neglect and domestic abuse field in 1987 and became a DOD Senior Program Analyst in the Family Advocacy Program in 2007, primarily focusing on child abuse and neglect and early home visiting. Currently, she has a responsibility for policy development and oversight of the DOD intervention and response to harmful behavior between children and youth and problematic sexual behavior in children and youth in military families. Welcome, Tib. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Tib, as we get started, we want to establish with our audience what are harmful behaviors and why should families and educators be aware of them? So that really is a great question, and I just want to start off by saying uh, how difficult it is to define harmful behavior between children and youth, and especially define it more precisely uh, for policy and program development because the term in and of itself captures a very, very broad range of behaviors. And these behaviors exist on a continuum from normative, cautionary to uh, problematic. So the definition, I mean, we're this is still very much a work in progress for the department, but where we've landed right now, and this could change, it's draft, that the way that we're defining it is any behavior initiated by a child or youth of a physical, sexual, or emotional nature that involves the intentional, actual, or threatened use of physical force, power, or verbal abuse against another child or youth. So serious harmful behavior includes problematic sexual behavior, bullying, physical aggression, threats with weapons that have a high likelihood of resulting in injury, serious psychological harm that impacts functioning, or death and can include illegal behavior such as aggravated assault, rape, and homicide. So you can see that is a very, very broad uh, definition. 
Now, why should families and educators be aware of them? Uh, because at the low to mild end of the scale, and here we're talking about normative and cautionary behaviors, these offer uh, the adults in the children's lives an opportunity for teaching. It's a teachable moment. And uh, these teachable moments can actually prevent escalation at these low levels uh, of more serious behaviors. So, but the mid to high end of the scale, these may be an indication of a deeper issue that may require targeted intervention or involvement with other agencies. So more importantly, harmful behavior is a form of communication. I think that's something I'd really like to stress. It's not just a behavior in and of itself. It's a form of communication, especially with young kids. So it's important to decipher and discover what's behind the behavior. What does the behavior actually mean? What is it trying to convey? Thank you, Tib. Um, can you describe some of the major efforts DOD has taken or, or is taking to respond to child-initiated harmful behaviors? Sure. Um, let me just give a little bit of history here. Um, in fiscal year 19, in the National Defense Authorization Act, that's the NDAA, the department was required to stand up a response capability to problematic sexual behavior in children and youth occurring on military installations. And so um, we grounded this work in three guiding principles. We wanted it to be, uh, we knew it needed to be developmentally attuned, uh, trauma-informed, and we wanted to use the existing pathways and structures to the greatest extent possible. So instead of creating something new, we wanted to leverage what we already had. And what we recognized is that it's not only the what we do, but it's the how we do it. So we knew we needed to develop a multidisciplinary cross-functional team, and that's what we've been referring to as the Tiger Team, comprised of all the agencies and programs at the DOD level who have equity in preventing and responding to harmful behaviors. So that would include DODEA, our schools, child and youth programs, law enforcement and military criminal investigators, all of our family-centric programs. We've even brought in housing you know, where kids live on military installations. Um, we brought in DHA, the behavioral health arm of uh, the Defense Health Agency. And then we did the same thing at the military service level. So we brought these same people together at the military service level for a second tiger team, which we call the service uh, tiger team for problematic sexual behavior in children and youth. What we largely did during that period was just map out what currently exists and we identified gaps, and then we developed strategies to close those gaps and wrote policy along the way. So the primary uh, areas of interest were, number one is to uh, nurture a paradigm shift. And this of course requires a considerable amount of training. And we even had to stand up a database. So um, at the same time, we also looked outside of the DOD to our existing USDA partnerships with the land-grant universities, and we wanted to let fully leverage our existing contracts, a contract that we had, uh, Greg, with the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. But we also forged relationships with the National Center of Sexual Behavior of Youth, the NCA, which has all of the child advocacy centers. So um, then we developed training for multiple professional groups that included all the folks that I just mentioned earlier that were on the Tiger team. So law enforcement, service providers, home visitors, advocates, schools, et cetera. And we also developed a non-clinical referral tool through Penn State 
and that was to right-size referrals to the, uh, to the Family Advocacy Program. We issued several policies, and then, like I said earlier, we built a database. So that's where, that's where we are right now. So that was all related just to problematic sexual behavior, which is just one uh, form of harmful behavior between children and youth. But now we're moving into this broader scope, and we hope to apply the same methodology and build on the work that we accomplished with problematic sexual behavior. That really sounds great. And it's, it's really helpful to hear about all the partnerships that you all have established. And we understand that there are a number of excellent web-based resources to learn about problematic sexual behavior in children and youth. Are these resources available for anyone to listen to? Could you point our listeners to specific resources? Sure. There is, I think, like three or four that I really wanted to highlight because although they have a military um, component that really targets uh, the military audience more specifically, they have also broadened to include the civilian sector. So I wanted to start off with Thrive. So um, Thrive is an initiative that we developed with Penn State, and um, it is a series of developmentally comprehensive, evidence-informed, universal, and targeted parenting programs for uh, military and civilian families. So the modules are online. In fact, all you have to do is Google Thrive at PSU, and it'll take you to the landing page. And uh, when, once you get there, you'll see that there's modules that are developmentally uh, linked. So the first one is Take Root for parents of uh, babies. And uh, then Sprout, we move into toddlerhood and preschool. Grow is for school age, and then branch out is for, uh, for our teens. So there's also resources for parents and also resources for professionals on that site. And they just recently released a uh, special topics webinar called um, Adolescent Mental Health, Parenting to Wellness. That was recently um, released, it's quite good. So it's thrive.psu.edu. So the next one is the Virtual Lab School, and I, I would imagine that many of the listeners are already aware of the uh, Virtual Lab School at Ohio State, but they built seven professional developmental tracks for the professional development of our teachers. And, uh, and I say teachers, it's, it's in our DoDEA schools, but it's also our child care providers in our um, uh, child development centers. So um, they, in addition to the lessons, uh, these uh, seven professional development tracks, they also developed a, a series of focused topics. And I think two of which are particularly relevant to what we're talking about today, which is supporting children with challenging behaviors and sexual development and behavior in children and youth. So challenging behaviors and sexual behaviors, those are two focused topics that are on that site. And again, real easy to get to, you can actually Google virtual lab school VLS or you can just type in virtuallabschool.org. And so the next one is One-Op. It's a wonderful partnership that we have with uh, Valdosta State, and um, they develop virtual professional development webinars for providers who serve military families. And we work with them to develop a series just on sexual behavior in children and youth. And so they created 13 webinars delivered by the leading experts in the field. Many of them are drawn from the National Center for Sexual Behavior of Youth, but also the National Child Traumatic Stress Networks. Uh, resources are linked 
So uh, all of these come with free CEUs and are archived on uh, YouTube and they are open to public. Oh, I almost forgot that uh, more recently they released a course for clinical providers and it's entitled PSBCY Clinical Assessment and Treatment Overview Courses. And those are four courses. Again, that's on oneop.org. You can search under sexual behavior under webinars and courses and it'll take you right there. So, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, really highlight that there's a ton of resources on PSBCY, more specifically on the National Center for Sexual Behavior of Youth. And uh, that's out of Oklahoma University Health Sciences Center. Great information for providers and families uh, on that site. So I think those are the four primary uh, resources that we built through this initiative. Sounds great. Those are great resources, Tib. I wanted to go back to a comment you made earlier and ask you, what do you think are some of the most important guiding principles when addressing these harmful behaviors among youth? Well, I think the, I have to go back to um, what I mentioned, I think in my answer to the first question, which is to keep in mind that all behavior has meaning. And so um, sometimes we absolutely have to react in the moment because we have to create or restore safety. But uh, once the immediate needs are addressed, it's so important to stay curious this is something I learned from my DODIA colleagues in reflective practice is just taking a moment. This is what I noticed and this is what I wonder. This is what I wonder about this behavior, what it means, what were the antecedents, you know, is there anything else that I need to know about this kid in particular? So, um, but what's really key, what's really important, in fact, it's imperative uh, that we consider where kids are developmentally. And also to keep in mind that harmful behavior and in particularly all behavior is multi-determined, but for harmful behavior in particular, uh, there's a couple of things we think are really important to attend to, or at least to be curious about. The first is any previous or existing trauma, the overlay of special needs and the environmental factors, you know, um, the setup uh, in the environment in which the behavior occurs but also what the child might be bringing into the setting. I mean, even something so simple as being hungry, you know, or not getting enough sleep can have a profound influence on a child's capacity to access their ability to, to control, uh, you know, big feelings. So it's important to keep all of those in mind. That really makes sense to me, Tib, and it, it feeds into our next question pretty neatly, how can families and educators communicate about harmful behaviors they may notice in a student or child? Very carefully. <laughs> so, uh, so and I, I mean, it's a delicate balance. I think it's a delicate balance uh, between conveying the seriousness of the behavior, but at the same time conveying hope. So it's a little bit of a both and, and it has to be done in the same conversation. So, but with practice, I think that any of us can master that, you know, so you want to convey the seriousness of the situation, but also hope. Now that's on the side of the educator or the child care provider. But I also think it goes without saying that engaging in difficult conversations with families, um, with parents in particular, who, uh, let's say a child who's exhibited or who has acted out, who has harmed another uh, child, but these are really, really tough. And uh, I really believe it's a skill in and of itself. 
And fortunately, the VLS, the virtual lab school that I just mentioned, created a focused topic lesson just on this subject alone for our military audience. And what I've seen with the VLS is those courses eventually make their way onto the public site. But I really think that even without a formalized training, that it warrants some conversation, preparatory conversation in those settings uh, about how to have those conversations and where you need to be, the conversation starter, you know, the uh, child care um, director or the principal, vice principal, whoever is going, or the school counselor, whoever is going to have this conversation with the parents needs to take a moment to check in with themselves you know, and just recognize that it's a tough conversation. So a couple of things I think that are really important to keep in mind. They need to be strength-based and again, convey hope. Um, I think they need to be free of labels. Uh, try to use person-first language, child-first language in all the communication that you might have with a parent. And also reflective in tone. Again, what I said earlier about this is what I notice and I wonder, some version of that. So create the openness to uh, and the possibility of having a fuller conversation. I know this takes time and we don't always have the time to do this, but if we do have the time to do, really important to think about how to build that reflective tone into the conversation. The next one is, uh, I think, convey curiosity, but also confidence. You know, confidence that if we come together around this issue, I'm confident that we will find a way forward. So again, that's another way to convey hope. And again, I've, I think I've already mentioned this, but it needs to be solution focused, you know, problem focused, restorative in nature, conveys a sense of the possibility of healing. And the way I like to think about it, it's, it really is a puzzle to be solved and not a child or family who needs to be fixed. Really excellent points, Tip. Thank you. Uh, really nice frame in terms of how families, how others can uh, frame these issues and be able to engage with children in a in a helpful, hopeful way, as you're saying. Let me ask you, these are not behaviors unique to military families, for sure. So what may be different for military-connected families in preventing and responding to harmful behaviors versus civilian families? Right. And Greg, I'm, I'm glad you prefaced the question by noting or emphasizing that uh, there's a lot of commonalities, you know, between military and civilian families. So when I thought about this question, I thought, okay, what might be different? I think what might impact a military family is any history of relocation. I mean, all military families are constantly moving. So, you know, this transition disruption that happens regularly in a, uh, a military family's life could impact, you know, the consistency that you may need you know, to respond to harmful behaviors in children and youth, especially at the early stages. I also think that any type of military-related separations uh, may also bring a unique uh, color to a family's experience. However, I think what's unique to COVID, I mean, I, when I think about the separations that were related to COVID-19, really impacted the natural informal support systems that were on the installation. So, you know, for instance, uh, I was thinking about the military spouse groups who met in person, you know, to garner support, but even military kids in teen centers. I mean, they weren't coming into teen centers anymore. I mean, that was happening on the outside as well. But I think, uh, you know, especially when you're new to a community, 
many of our military kids sort of gravitate to the other military kids, at least to get their footing. And so that wasn't there, you know, during the pandemic, the active stage of the pandemic. So I think those might be two, um, two issues. I just wanted to bring up two issues that came up at a team forum that I attended at Joint Base Lewis-McCord and two pieces really stuck in my mind. And one of them was a child talked about how difficult it was as a military child living in base housing on the installation that even when she went back to school and she's starting to make these connections with her civilian peers, that because it's hard to get them on post, it's hard to get them on base, and it takes some work, and it takes some work for the parents to, you know, to get, get them a visitor's pass or whatever it may be to get the child on base. And sometimes that can be a barrier. The other thing I was just surprised to hear was one military team said, you know, sometimes I just don't want to be a military team. You know, I just don't want to be identified as a military child when I'm in my public school. I just want to be like everybody else. It's almost like I'm carrying two identities. And sometimes I just want to let that one go. I thought that was kind of profound, you know? So, uh, but anyway, I think those are some things that we need to keep in mind when we're working with military kids or engaging with military kids. Those suggestions are so helpful, Tib. This really goes back to an example that you mentioned um, emergent research is suggesting that the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated restrictions have been tied to increases in some harmful behaviors, specifically those related to mental health. What suggestions or resources can you share as families and educators continue to navigate those challenges? Well, I think first, just recognizing that the COVID-19 impact is a uh, a universal shared experience, okay? It's something that we've all universally have experienced in some form or another, but it's individually felt and expressed. So we have this universal experience individually expressed. So even though we may be returning to a brick and mortar places of work and school and that sort of thing, we certainly aren't returning to business as usual. I think even from a military-related lens, it's not even the same as reintegration or reunion after a deployment, um, or even to a national tragedy like 911, because there's only a certain segment of the population that was directly impacted. But COVID-19 impacted everybody, all of us. And so um, I think that this really calls us to to allow and give time to take this in, to take in the impact and recognize that it's different than what we've experienced in the, in the past. And we need to do that with a lot of kindness and a lot of uh, generosity of spirit, you know, gratitude, appreciation and compassion, but it's not simply just returning. Okay, we're done with that because we all carry it with us. You know, the teachers and our child care providers are carrying it with us, with them, parents are, children are, and we all are dealing with this in our own way. It's collective and it's individual. So, so you know, when I think about, you mentioned maybe some resources or suggestions as we all try to, to navigate. Greg, I'm going to turn to NCTSN as a, a wonderful resource. Uh, because there's so many of your resources that speak to the impact of trauma. 
And I think that, and maybe it's not the trauma in the capital T, you know, it's maybe it's a little T trauma, but I think it's really important that the folks take a look at what's on the NCTS Insight. I also think that SAMHSA with its, um, with some of their supported resources in particular, I think about the mental health technology transfer center network. And I know that's a mouthful, but I think what I really like about that site is it takes you to regions in the country where you can actually drill down to the local level to try to find resources in your area. So they also have the National Training and Technical Center for Child, Youth, and Families Mental Health, and that has some training on it. But I also wanted to mention the Dear Colleague letter. Uh, This came out in June, I think it was June of 22, and it was a collaborative letter. I think HHS uh, spearheaded the effort, but it was published on the social emotional development in mental health for kids in particular, but what I really liked about it was it also with embedded in the memo were lots of links to very specific uh, websites where people could learn more about social emotional development and, and mental health, especially in the wake of COVID-19. So um, in particular, there was a link on there called Project Aware, which is Advancing Wellness and Resilience in Education. And that site uh, actually focuses on youth 12 to 17 and their families. And there's lots of YouTube link just-in-time videos for that same audience. And of course, one of the most trusted resources out there is the American Academy uh, of Pediatrics. They just put out uh, a really nice, It's act- I don't know if it's actual portal, but it's just full of information on youth suicide, you know? And so it was really nice to see that they're on Bright Futures. So, But I also want to just remind everybody uh, that that may be listening is don't forget what you already know. You know, this feels different, but it doesn't mean that because it feels different that necessarily you have to, um, that you don't already have some foundational strengths and knowledge and abilities uh, that might have just been covered over, you know, by the experience of COVID. Absolutely. And Tip, you've been so generous and and generating so many wonderful resources. And our last question is actually around prevention. And a lot of our listeners are military connected family members themselves. What resources can you recommend for, for those family members listening that might serve to prevent or address harmful behaviors uh, either in their own, uh, in their families or their communities? Um, are there specific or uh, suggestions for those folks? Right. So, you know, with military families, you know, I'm going to send them to military one source because in, in not necessarily, I mean, sure, you could go on the website, but I want to encourage any military families out there that might be wondering about this or wanting to learn more about this is to actually pick up and call the call center and uh, have a conversation with a live person. And, but of course, to explore the website, the Military One Source uh, website. For those kids and families who are in large military presence in that school, uh, is don't forget your school liaison officers. You know, the school liaison officers in those schools are like a, an encyclopedia of uh, information on resources in and uh, off the base. So, and then of course, if there's child and youth behavioral implants in the schools, those are always a good resource. And then uh, when I think about 
families and parents who might be looking for resources, especially around sexual behavior, I would send them to NCSBY, the National Center for Sexual Behavior Review. And of course, Greg, I'm gonna send them to NCTSN because both of these sites have a lot of information for parents. But I know that most times people will look for help close to home. So of course, don't forget there's the family centers on the installations, but I also think it's just finding what's there in your community to support you. I also wanted to mention, give a shout out to the uh, Boys and Girls Clubs of America who've done some wonderful work around becoming trauma-informed. I looked at some of their work and it's just fabulous. You know, so Boys and Girls Clubs of America, but also the 4-H. You know, so it's like everybody is getting into the business, you know, because of COVID-19. And so that's a positive. We're all much more sensitive and aware of the behavioral health needs of children and families and really emphasizing how important it is to uh, to reach out. And I feel like people feel more comfortable reaching out because we're all in this together. Great messages. Thank you, Tib. You're welcome. Thank you both so much for being with us today. I know our listeners have learned a lot from this conversation. I just want to remind the listeners that links to all of the resources that Tib has shared will be included in the show notes. So if you're particularly interested about a resource that she shared, you will be able to click it in the show notes for this episode. I want to thank the listeners again for tuning in for this three-part series. I am very excited about the opportunity of this series to really help parents and caregivers and youth serving professionals to be more prepared to support military connected children. So thank you both so much. We're so fortunate to have had you and we hope you'll be back to listen with us soon. We'd like to thank you for joining today's episode and we hope that you'll consider listening to our other two episodes related to this series strength-based advocacy, and collaboration. You've been listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. Until next time, live a great story.